As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We lost five more newspapers this week in five Canadian cities. And uh, I'm going to be talking today on Shortcuts with one of the reporters who's going to lose their job. Before I do that, I want to talk with you about uh, some thoughts I had reading the press release from Star Metro when they announced that these five newspapers are ceasing publication, announcing that this newspaper chain they tried to start up, Star Metro chain, is, is dead. What they said, the reason why, is because of a decline in print advertising. That's why something failed in the relationship between publisher and advertiser. The reader had no say. Didn't matter if the reader thought that the journalists were doing a great job. Didn't matter if the reader valued the work the journalists were doing and would have paid for it. These are free newspapers. Everything was done to minimize the role of that relationship and the role of readers, of you, in that relationship. You were cut out of that deal. You had no say as to whether or not those newspapers could sustain. No one asked the public. No one asked you. Increasingly, when you hear about the decrease in journalism in this country, these decisions are made out of your hands. You have no say in it whatsoever. So what I wanted to talk about with you before we start the show is is that lack of a seat at the table, that lack of agency, that lack of power in these decisions that really do affect you a great deal. I think that people want to be more involved. I think that people want to be more engaged as, as citizens in public life. I think people want to do more than you are given the option, than you have the choice of doing. It's a pretty miserable and shabby thing in Canada, the role of the citizen, how it's been treated. You can vote. And then, like, I don't know, unless you're going to go and, like, volunteer for a cause or run for office or run on a campaign or do things that very few people have the time to do, there's very little agency or opportunity that you are provided to be involved. And those options are diminishing every day. 
the way that you're treated as a citizen is getting smaller and smaller, while the way that you're being treated as a consumer, everybody wants to treat you as a consumer everywhere you go. I try to sell you products on the show. I try to sell you mattresses and things like that. I don't apologize for that. That's part of how we operate. But when I ask you to support Canada Land, which is what I'm doing now, I'm not trying to sell you a product. I'm asking you to hire me and my colleagues to do a job. We want to work for you. Look, there are people who are going to listen to this and say that this is a, a crass exploitation, that I am trying to leverage the loss of 73 jobs of journalists across this country for the gain of Canada land. And what I want to say is, you are absolutely right. I am absolutely drawing a direct connection between the decrease in journalistic representation that you have and the choice that we are giving you here at Canada Land. You do have a say in whether or not there are journalists representing you. And that is the job that I'm asking you to hire us to do. Have you noticed that there are more cameras watching us, cameras that belong to private corporations and to the government, that there is more surveillance of us, of our private communications by the state? We are being reported on as citizens more than ever before, and we have fewer cameras watching them. And isn't it galling that the very people who are surveying us, some of the most powerful and wealthy people in the world, are telling you that the journalist is your enemy? There are few people who are harder on journalists in this country than me. The journalist is not your enemy. The journalist works for you. Reporters give citizens power. And it actually doesn't matter if you read their stuff. If there is a journalist watching a corporation, watching an elected official, they are representing you. The very fact that they are there watching on behalf of you, that powerful person to inform the world, whether you read that report or not, that empowers you. And every time a journalist's job disappears in this country, your power diminishes. Our job originally was to watch the media. Increasingly, we're watching politicians as well, and we're covering other things. But when we watched the media, it used to mean that we were watching those very reporters that I was talking about. Watching the media now means something different. We are increasingly watching people who are not news journalists, who are not reporters trying to empower you. We are increasingly watching propagandists, state propaganda or private propaganda who we don't know who's paying for it. Or our job is to watch these mega tech companies that have an increasingly outsized role in media that the world has never seen before. And compared to them, we are tiny, but we've proven that we can be pretty damn powerful. I brag about how we are one of the only profitable news organizations in this country. I brag about how we're growing. Those things are true. The margins are tiny. The annual revenue, everything combined is under a million dollars. There's 10 of us and tons of freelancers. We need every bit of help we can get when we go to work for you. And I promise you, if you hire us to work for you, to represent you, I will never treat you like a fucking consumer. I will send you a t-shirt, we'll send you a keychain. That's our way of saying thank you. But that is not what we provide. We do not provide products, we provide a service. When you support us on Patreon, we work for you. You are our boss. You can fire us at any time. And if you do, if we fail to represent you and your right to know and your right to be engaged in argument and information up to your standards and you fire us, which you can do at any time, I mean, that'll break my heart. But what I ask of you is, go hire somebody else to do it while you still can. But if you value what we do and you want to hire us to keep doing it and to do it better, we need you. Go to patreon.com slash Thanks. 
Grant, journalist at the Star Halifax, joining me from Halifax. Welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. Taryn, uh, we've got the full gamut today. We're going to talk about print, radio, and a podcast. We're going to talk about the totally predictable, totally awful, and possibly preventable demise of your newspaper and four others because Star Metro is gone in five Canadian cities. We're going to talk about CBC Radio pulling back where it is needed the most, Canada's North. And we're going to talk about the man we need the least. Don Cherry is back in podcast form with his son helping out and his grandson. Glad to have you here. This episode is brought to you by Joy Wakefield, Marcia McDonald, Eileen Senek, J. Murray Angus, Eric Aubinell, Joel Butler, Ruth A. Lambert, and Brian Crago. My name is Brian Crago, and I'm from Detroit, Michigan, and I am a supporter of Candleland. I just re-upped my support over a year. The reason I give to Candleland is because of the excellent reporting on Thunder Bay, and I encourage everyone to give uh, to support local journalism and for us in the United States to learn a little bit more about our neighbors in Ontario and in, in Canada. So keep up the good work, guys. Taryn, I'm going to read your tweet. Uh, you were the one to break the news. A fairly unsurprising turn of events. The Toronto Star is shutting down the Star Metro newspapers across the country, which means I and all my colleagues will soon be out of a job. Last print edition coming December 20th. I'm so sorry. Thank you. Yeah, pretty major bummer. Uh, but, you know, as you said, as I tweeted, it's kind of unsurprising. When the Toronto Star launched Star Touch, killed Star Touch, their tablet app, which was going to be the, the digital salvation of the Toronto Star. And then there was a change in management and they announced that what they were going to do is take their Metro newspapers, turn them into this extension of the Star brand, basically create this national newspaper chain and build a print digital hybrid network where they were doing really modern things with kind of building their own mini Facebook advertising platform, capturing people's information. There was at least a sense that there was a plan that the people who were, you know, tasked with this unenviable task of trying to turn things around had uh, fresh leadership that sounded cogent, more so like we just made fun of Star Touch. Star Metro, I think, had everyone's goodwill. And the fact that you in Halifax and the team in Vancouver, we kept hearing great things about the actual journalism being done and stories were broken across the country and markets that needed journalism were getting it through Star Metro. We weren't making fun of Star Metro. You didn't hear people wishing you people anything but goodwill. Uh, so this really is, this is a bummer. Yeah. And I think that there was a sense that even Torstar had some faith that they could keep these things going because when they rebranded into Star Metro, Last spring, they invested in more reporters in a lot of the markets, not in Halifax, but in Vancouver, Calgary, and Edmonton. They brought more people into the fold. And to your point that, you know, this isn't a reflection on the work that any of us were doing after they issued all of the layoff notices yesterday afternoon, the Toronto Star went ahead and took two stories from Star Metro newspapers and ran them in the Toronto Star newspaper today on A2 and A10, which I think is an indication that they see the value in the work that we're doing. 
I think there's a there's a tendency usually deserved to bash management at moments like this. I don't know enough about the inside track of this. I'm wondering what your thoughts are. I know that, that there were clear messages to Star Metro teams that there was like two years of runway and if it wasn't working, you knew it wasn't gonna it wasn't gonna continue. There does seem to be a little bit of dissonance between the early report that 73 jobs were being eliminated and then uh, Unifor saying 121 employees. I'm wondering what your take is on on how management handled this. If you think that you and your colleagues have been treated fairly, or you know, just if you could just give us some information about that. Right. Sure. Well, I don't think I ever had a clear indication of how long they were really giving it. I mean, for anyone who has watched the media landscape in the last few years you know, the writing has been on the wall. So I don't know if it was really up to management to give us like a, a, a specific warning of, of what the outcomes might be because we're all cogent and informed enough people to have noticed that on our own. I guess, you know, there have been some murmurs around the office just in the last couple of weeks that things might be, that our next might kind of be on the chopping block. I'm sure that you're familiar with the last quarterly results that came out from Torstar, which were not very promising. Yeah. So... Of course, it's always disappointing to get this kind of news, and I don't know if there's a good way that they could have gone about it. There, there isn't way, any way that they could have kind of softened this blow from my perspective. I suppose I wish that they would have been a little bit more forthright about the situation that they're now putting us in, which is essentially throwing us into the Hunger Games, trying to vie for a few positions to keep their bureaus across the country. In Halifax, we have a team of five on our editorial, on the editorial side. And they want to have one reporter in Halifax now. And that's definitely not the way that the news was conveyed by Torstar. Um, you know, I think the way that the, the news release started was that, you know, they had an announcement about their expansion, which felt a little bit disingenuous to me. I want to break that down. I think people will be a bit confused because they are killing the Star Metro newspaper chain. Yes. But they're maintaining digital bureaus in these different markets and the way they're going to staff those digital bureaus, they're saying, oh, this is just a shift to digital, the, the print thing, everyone knows print's not working. We're going to have digital bureaus, but that suggests that there's no decrease in the actual amount of journalism when, in fact, that, like you say, they're going from, what, five reporters to one, and then they're publicly listing that job, and you all are welcome to like audition for your own job and fight each other for it? Is that the way this is going to work? Yeah, basically. And you're right. This I think there is some confusion around this because it, was, it hasn't been laid out totally clearly. Um, yes, the newspapers are gone. All of us have been laid off or we've received our layoff notices, but they want to maintain some kind of presence in those cities. So they've put out a job posting um, for Halifax for one person, and it's open externally as well. And it's not exactly clear what that person is going to be doing. I mean, they'll be reporting for the Toronto Star, but I don't know if they will be expected to cover just Nova Scotia or all of the Maritimes or all of Atlantic Canada. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. So that's still sort of playing out. And in the other markets, it's a similar situation. It just feels like in the worst way possible, you know, and, and I'm, I know they're trying to do whatever they can do, but all the steps along the way, be it the swap and kill they did with Post Media, where they traded titles and markets were divvied up. And then immediately both newspaper chains, just after acquiring competing newspapers, killed them in an anti-competitive measure, which is currently being investigated by the Competition Bureau. You got that. Then you got the newspaper bailout, which, you know, the carefully protected independence from government money for many decades in the newspaper industry. Fuck it. Anything we can do to stay alive, we're going for it. Public cries from John Hondrick 
saying we're running out of runway. Like basically we're going to be dead if the government doesn't bail us out. All these things that would be unthinkable a generation ago happening, but all kind of hurtling to the same conclusion. And, and you know, your tweet saying that's predictable, like, like I say, I, no one was rooting for the demise of Star Metro, but I was skeptical from the start. First of all, like the idea that the Toronto Star brand was a valuable brand outside of Toronto, I was dubious of that. I didn't know that, like, if you're going to start a newspaper chain and try to engage audiences with this thing, I'm not sure that, that the Toronto Association was a was a feature and not a bug. Do you have any thoughts on that? I think that it's different everywhere that they that they had Star Metro newspapers. Probably in Alberta, it was more difficult than it was here. I think that in Halifax, with the rebrand, we continued to sort of maintain community connections and, and do really good reporting, not necessarily in spite of the Star Metro banner, but sort of... People, people didn't seem to notice it all that much. You know, people still mm-hmm. considered us the Metro newspaper. So I don't think it was a help or a hindrance for us to be connected to the Toronto Star here. I think it was a help to share a website with them. I think that it amplified our stories a little bit more. And, um, and I was always happy to see when our work was published in the Toronto Star because it just, it gave us more reach. I also was skeptical about sort of trying to create like, a strong reader journalist relationship on a vehicle that had been the Metro, which was kind of like here, free newspaper, aggregating content from other newspapers, not really taking that kind of like, you know, reader advocacy, journalism first, and then trying to kind of ease people into that relationship. You know, the the Metro brand, I think, had certain baggage with it as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Anyhow, any newspaper's got an uphill battle. I mean, you you could split hairs all you like. Um, You said that you didn't think anybody was like cheering or, you know, hoping for the demise of the Star Metro newspapers, but some of my Twitter mentions definitely um, dispute that. (laughs) Some people were you know, sort of accusing us of being, you know, this hypocritical left-leaning media. And, you know, we, we sort of deserve this. I suppose that's probably a vocal minority that um, shouldn't be listened to. But it is, I think it's just worth mentioning that this changing landscape, changing media landscape, I guess it just, it's interesting to see the way that people are reacting to it. And it's unfortunate that um, not everyone values news reporting because there is such a polarized uh, dialogue around, you know, the way that news is being delivered and reported. Yeah. It makes it difficult to advocate for the for the work that we do, you know, when some people see a newspaper uh, crumbling and they sort of like just brush it off as like, oh, well, you know, the left the left-wing media deserve this. Yeah, I saw those tweets. Yeah. Anti-star tweets, go learn to code tweets and um fuck them. Fuck those people. Uh you know, whatever in life brought them to the point where reporters who did not wake up in the morning trying to push a left-wing political message, but woke up every morning trying to bring everyone information, including those people. And when those reporters, young people, people not making a lot of money, lose their jobs, they cheer, fuck those people. Yeah. And we were a newsroom of five people trying really hard to deliver the best news that we can, but that's a very small newsroom to cover a fairly large region. You know, we're covering the whole province and often trying to reach across the Maritimes as well. And so it's unfortunate that people don't recognize the difficult situation that that all reporters and all newsrooms are in right now trying to deliver news. Yeah. I don't know if this is, uh, you know, comfort or what, but there was nothing you could have done about this. Like, I mean, that's, that's I'm sure as maddening as it is, uh, you know, comforting, but like, it just had nothing to do with the quality of the work. The quality of the work was high, but the business model 
it detached that the quality of the work from the, the the possible success or failure of the product. You know, there wasn't a the circuit wasn't wasn't properly closed. Yeah, for sure. It's interesting that um, you know the, the newspapers are being shut down, um, but they're trying to change to this digital format. And um, I guess I'm wondering if if this is going to be a solution for any newspaper. Like, is this is this going to is this going to save the Toronto Star eventually? Is this going to help? Um, any of these newspapers to across the country to to keep themselves afloat um, by pushing their digital subscriptions. It's it's going to be interesting to watch this unfold over the next few years. Well, the question there is compromised. Whether or not people can be convinced to pay for a digital subscription is dependent on the quality of the content behind that paywall. And if that content is being created by one reporter and not five, you've polluted your experiment. You know what I mean? Like, it would be interesting to see if people had a choice of financially supporting the great work you and your colleagues were doing, if they would do so. But now they're they're like, okay, now you'll have to pay for a much reduced product. And then when that fails, what is that actually going to tell anyone? Right. So are you talking about when you say if they had a choice, are you talking about like a hard versus a soft paywall kind of situation? I mean, I know that there's always been, you know, the star moved to a paywall and, and the permeability of that paywall, people could still get the, the content they wanted if they were really dead set on it. I guess if the business model was really built on a direct financial relationship between reader and 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 news organization, um, and it seems like it was overwhelmingly based on, and, and in fact existentially based on, advertiser interest in the product mm-hmm. or the lack thereof. Also, it's interesting that you said like you know there's nothing that I could have done or the other reporters could have done, but then it's also um, a question of you know having a high quality of journalism to drive people to pay for the news that they're reading. So there seems to sort of be a bit of a dissonance there because it's like you can provide really good coverage and and people won't subscribe. But then, you know, you're also suggesting that if you provide really good coverage, then people will want to subscribe. So I don't know. Is that is just promising good coverage really the solution? I don't know. If you're saying we're going to provide you really good coverage if you if you pay us to do so, but then you give it away for free every day, if you also kind of like confuse that message, as I think some of the subscription services do by saying you'll, you'll get crosswords, you'll get recipes, are you putting a fine point on what the transaction is? Yeah. Which is society needs journalism, journalism costs money, you're not going to have it if you don't pay for it. You know what I mean? Like it's hard to know what failed when the question has been so diffused. Yeah. And I guess with the Star Metro newspapers, it's an especially interesting point because, yeah, we are giving the newspapers away for free every day. And they usually the stories are longer online. Like they only they they truncate them to put them in the newspapers. So that was supposed to be some kind of incentive that, you know, you don't get the full story unless you go to it online where you have to pay. Um, but that obviously didn't really work <laughs> yeah. in this situation. So I'm about as lost as you are on that question. Taryn, can you uh, just share with us a a couple of stories by you or your colleagues that you're especially proud of? Yeah, I would love to. Um, Well, I think our small but mighty team has done a really good job of like continuing coverage um, and a lot of collaborative stuff between a lot of us. So some like big Halifax stories in the last year have been around the question of street checks, which... In Toronto, you might be familiar with it, um, what police call carding there. Mm-hmm. And so we've, we've really covered that story, I think, as, as much as we possibly could have as a whole team from when a report came out in at the start of the year that showed that black people in Halifax were being street checked six times more than white people were. And we followed it up until just a few weeks ago when the justice minister said that they were going to be uh, banning the practice across the whole province. 
Yeah, I caught that one. Yeah. So yeah, I'm proud of the coverage that we did there. We've also had some really great court coverage of cases that nobody else has been touching. Some murder cases that, you know, sort of otherwise went unrecognized um, in Halifax. So props to my to my court reporting colleagues who were covering some of that stuff. And um, yeah, I guess just to say that, yeah, we're a small team that I think we've really punched above our weight. Yeah, well, props to, to those colleagues and, and to your Star Metro colleagues uh, across this country. And we're all, we're all poorer for not having those reporters in those courtrooms and everywhere else. Thank you. Okay, more shitty news. CBC executives are world-class masters of pissing on your head and telling you that it's a delightful, refreshing summer rain. And CBC bosses have announced that in amalgamating regional newscasts, in the three territories into one newscast, they are actually going to be doing a better job. CBC North Managing Director Janice Stein told her team in an internal email that they will have better reporting throughout the North by creating a new pan-territorial newscast across all three weekday morning shows in the Yukon, Northwest Territories, and Nunavut. The response from employees was swift, and uh, we got our hands on it the internal response in the thread. I uh, won't name any names here, but I'm going to share you some thoughts. Our audience will absolutely hate this decision, no matter how you try to spin it. People want more local coverage, and this achieves the opposite of that, said one employee. Pan-territorial newscasts will be a huge mistake, said another. It feels like a bomb dropped in our newsroom this morning. This management decision is knocking on the door of dictatorship, to put it lightly, said another. With reference to really important, crucial news stories about things like weather conditions, where people's very survival relies on a good newscast, uh, a employee asked, will our very important survival top stories be taken out of the newscast? That must be read in a nuktitut. So employees were very angry internally. And I'll say this, Taryn, about CBC employees. When CBC employees are angry in Toronto, we hear about it through off-the-record direct messages. They do not want to speak out publicly. But when CBC employees in the regions, as they're called, uh, get angry, they are not shy about speaking out publicly. And this time, some of those employees took to Twitter to share their outrage about this. They weren't the only ones. Uh, the legislature has decried this. The premier of Yukon, Sandy Silver, said, uh, as I'm sure you will agree, this decision will negatively impact residents in all three territories this is a really big deal, Taryn. Like, radio still matters a lot in a lot of communities, but especially in the North. And uh, it feels like this was handled poorly. Yeah, and I agree with you. I think it's a really um, sort of interesting spin that the CBC brass kind of put on this. But to your point, it's also quite interesting to see the way that CBC employees have responded. I was really sort of heartened to see that they were speaking out on behalf of their own ability to report and on behalf of the communities that they're serving. Um, and also just to see the Yukon Premier stepping up and, and taking a stance on this. I think that it's it's refreshing and it's nice to see a politician standing up for journalism and, and standing up for community members' right to, to being fairly represented in the news. Yeah, I think that there's something that's lacking from the conversation about the CBC so often, which is we would talk about any other crucial service that the government, you know, provides or funds in a different way. CBC is so politicized or, you know, we, we so rarely talk about it as something that we all own and that we deserve. And, 
you know, I think that if you are criticizing the CBC, it often gets understood as uh, that means that you're right wing and you want it to be defunded and destroyed, as opposed to criticizing it from the point of view of somebody who wants good CBC, who, who you know, it's your public broadcaster. And I think that in the North, uh, I think that it's it's such a crucial service that those politicized distinctions kind of fall away. And it's just it's just understood that this is you're doing harm to a community when you remove their local newscasts and don't try to tell us you're doing something good when you're doing that. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think that sometimes criticism uh, can come across just, you know, too aggressive to be productive. But I think in this case, a lot of people are saying that they just wish there had been more consultation before this kind of decision was made, um, which from my perspective, and granted, I've never been up north, I've never been further north than Edmonton. So I'm in a bit of a dubious place to even be commenting on this. But just based on on the commentary that I've seen from people who do have skin in the game, I think that it does seem like some consultation would have been uh, very valuable in this situation if they are dealing with budgetary restrictions. Maybe there's some other solution that they could have found to make sure that they are able to continue serving these communities in the best way that that they can and the way that those communities deserve since this is the public broadcaster. Oh, Taryn, uh, our producer, David, just uh, spoke to me in my ear and said, hold the phone, breaking news alert, they are reversing the decision. As we are speaking about wow, okay. on, on Wednesday morning. <laughs> That's fun. <laughs> uh, so, is uh, some good news on this uh, on the shortcuts. That kind of, uh, I don't know if it was the legislature or if it was just the public outcry, but it worked. Yeah, interesting. I just know a little bit talking to Canadians from all over the country, just like how important CBC Radio is when you are in a small community, when you're in a rural community. And, uh, you know, budgetary restrictions always exist. CBC has more money than they've ever had from the government. You know, this is inexcusable and uh, people shouldn't tolerate it. And they didn't tolerate it. And that's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll be interested to learn a little bit more about exactly how this shook out. But um, it is sort of nice to see that a decision like this can, in fact, be reversed and that, you know, the opinions of, of people who who speak up and speak out against um, an institution like this might have actually been taken into account in this situation. And also, if it was, in fact, the premier speaking out that that turned the tide on this, good for him. And I hope that um, other politicians might take note that they do have the ability to to scrutinize um, the public broadcaster and and to demand better of them. Yeah, you know what? I usually take a dim view of uh, elected officials weighing in on CBC coverage um, because of the relationship between government and CBC. It always feels like there's a veiled threat when they criticize CBC. But I think that uh, to say we want more CBC, we want better CBC, we want coverage for our constituents, ain't nothing wrong with that. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, good point. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world and BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. 
And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Taryn, uh, we note things that people need to have noted for them that they might have otherwise missed. And that is a feature called Duly Noted. Do you have something for us today? Yes, I would love to duly note something. The Northern Pulp Mill and Boat Harbor. So... Northern Pulp is sort of an economic staple of rural Nova Scotia, and they're facing a deadline of January 31st to close down their effluent treatment facility in in Boat Harbor. This is a hugely contentious story because it involves Indigenous reconciliation. There's Pictou Landing First Nation immediately next to Boat Harbor who have been calling for this polluted lagoon to be closed down for over 50 years now. And we're waiting to find out what Nova Scotia's environment minister is going to do about a proposal from Northern Pulp to build an alternative. The alternative is also quite contentious because they want to build a pipeline into the Northumberland Strait where fishermen rely on um, the waters there for their livelihood. And the federal environment minister, um, when, when Justin Trudeau appoints a new minister later today, may also have to weigh in on this issue. So there are many layers of complexity around this story, and there are going to be many developments over the, the next um, couple of months. And I think that it's one that's worth watching for, for Canadians, even outside the Maritimes. Duly noted. What have you got for us, Jesse? It pertains to Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell uh, has been caught in uh, a miscommunication regarding his book about miscommunications. And Malcolm Gladwell, of course... Uh, his career was once described by the late great Gawker as gleefully retold anecdotes arranged and analyzed to support some slightly unlikely sounding thesis. I'm on the record as uh, being delighted by Malcolm Gladwell, even though I kind of know he's full of shit. I kind of like the way he bullshits me. And it always seemed kind of harmless to me the way that he would sort of have a little fun theory and find little strands of science and research and anecdotes to kind of make the theory sound great. It, it, it makes an airplane ride all the much more pleasant. But uh, there is harm sometimes in his practice. What happened in this instance is he was doing an audiobook version of his book about miscommunication, and he's got this chapter about this this horrible story with Larry Nasser, who's uh, this gymnast coach who, of course, abused all these young athletes. And, you know, Gladwell's trying to make some point about how we miscommunicate because we don't think somebody could be could be lying, and so we default to trusting them or something. And he's sort of using examples of how parents dealt with Larry Nasser uh, and how they turned a blind eye or something to this effect. And he wanted to make the audiobook more like a podcast, and he was able to convince Michigan Public Radio, an NPR station, through old-school source work, 
Uh, there's this podcast, Believed, where a reporter formed a relationship with the parents of one of the abused kids and did a podcast, was able to earn their trust and have the parents come on and talk. And uh, the podcast was excellent and was ethical. And later in his Gladwellian way, like, I love your podcast. I want to give you a shout out. I, I want to include some of the tape of this interview in my audiobook. And you need to tell me like today or it's not going to happen. And they, they hand the tape over to him and the audiobook comes out and the parents find out like when somebody hears the audiobook, they hear their own voices on Malcolm Gladwell's audiobook, their own voices, which which they thought they were only giving to National Public Radio. And they claim that it's taken out of context and suggests that they were, you know, insufficiently vigilant in protecting their own children. And I bring up this kind of awful and, and complicated story not to dunk on Gladwell, but because it's just got me thinking about our own practice. Like I, I, I have a fairly open attitude towards the use of clips. I make liberal use of my fair dealing exception as a journalist, like clips, if you're using them in certain ways that are legally sanctioned. We should be able to use clips and take content and not everything should be about some licensing deal. But when you are in an economy like ours, where journalism is increasingly becoming a commodity and quotes and clips and swaps of promos become commodities from this old regime where it was, you know, national public radio and, and source work and, and how doing interviews that were in context where you had control and you could make sure that your source was okay with how they were represented, uh, you know, and, and make sure you're okay with your own ethics about it. Things just like get traded as like coins in this, in this new nonfiction economy and you get further and further away from your source. And I'm sure Gladwell, he's defending himself. He's saying he didn't take anything out of context, but it's an ugly dispute. And uh, it's got everybody, I think, who does this kind of work thinking about the best practices in using clips and using people's voices. And uh, I thought it was worth noting. Julie noted. Because I don't worship at the, the altar of hockey. I never have. And maybe it's because of where I grew up, but there's, there's a, and going to a couple different universities, there's a certain type of person in my mind, in my experience, who does. And they all tended to be white boys who weren't, um, let's say, very nice. They were not generally thoughtful. They were often bullies. Uh, their parents were able to afford to put them, you know, spend $5,000 a year on minor hockey. And for me, Don Cherry is the walking and talking representative of that type. Mm -hmm. And he's a type of person that now people wanted, like, and I know he's done some good things, but at the same time, when someone good is also to, able to make fun of people who believe in climate science, who's also able to be like, whether he's charming or not, but he's still a bigot, and a misogynist when you're, you know, to have those two things, like I dismiss those people. That was Jess Allen on CTV's The Social. And full disclosure, uh, there was a brief time when Jess Allen edited me uh, when I worked at McLean's. And that opinion from Jess Allen resulted in a nationally trending hashtag, fire Jess Allen. People said that she was racist. If you're going to fire Don Cherry, you got to fire Jess Allen. CTV, to their credit, did not fire Jess Allen. And I'm eager to move on from discussing this Don Cherry debacle, but I, I did want to talk about this with you, Taryn. What did you make of this kind of aftershock with this Jess Allen clip? Well, I think it's a false equivalency to say, you know, if you fire Don Cherry, you should fire Jess Allen. I, I don't think that they uh, offended people equally. <laughs> I feel kind of bad for Jess Allen. I, I think that um, she seemed sort of worked up about this and, you know, something that has been part of the center of this conversation is that she had personal experiences with hockey players. And of course, I don't know what those were, but it did seem to me like she was maybe speaking from a place of some like personal hurt. So it's unfortunate that 
um, it's blown up the way that it has. I mean, maybe she didn't get her point across as effectively as she could have, but I, I don't think that it really warranted the backlash that it got. And like you, I, yeah, I'm ready to kind of close the book on the whole Don Cherry thing. So I hope that this might be the last time we have to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, look, I, I think that uh, clarity about the points, not just that Jess Allen's trying to make, but that Don Cherry was trying to make, if we're, if we're going to talk about what's equivalent to what, I can understand how people hearing that would hear that as an attack on white hockey players. Uh, I can understand how they'd get there, but that's not what I heard, and that's not what I, I feel pretty confidently was her point. And I don't think she was just uh, speaking from a place of personal hurt. I mean, the reason why she delved into her personal anecdotal history, which she quite clearly defined as, like, I'm speaking from my own personal experience here, and this isn't like opinion, like this is me just kind of summarizing accurately her opinion. I'll try to do that right now. She said, I don't worship at the altar of hockey. And I think by that, she means this idea that hockey is what unifies Canada and that all, all are welcome in hockey. That's sort of an idea that we're fed. But she says, in my personal experience, the reality is different than that worshipped altar. The reality is it was one class of people. It was one ethnicity of people. They were not terribly inclusive. In my experience, they were actually kind of rude and, and, and uh, you know, aggressive people. And Don Cherry reminds me of those people. And, and he represents them. He doesn't represent all of us in the way that this national mythology of hockey is used. I thought that's a totally salient point. I think that that is absolutely a legitimate thing for somebody to be saying on an opinion show, and it's legitimate for people to disagree with that. But those who are pretending that that was a racist assault on white people or white hockey players, I think are either looking to be offended or they're looking for something to throw back at those who called for Don Cherry to lose his job. And I, and I think it's equally a fair summary of Don Cherry's point. His argument, such as it was, was that immigrants, you people who come here from other places and want to enjoy the milk and honey and what's wonderful about Canada, need to be deferential and wear the poppy and honor the people who died so that you could enjoy our wonderful way of life. And in his experience in Mississauga and downtown Toronto, which have majority non-white populations, People are insufficiently respectful and deferential to veterans because they don't wear the poppy. I think that's just like a plain statement of those two positions, and they are not equivalent. Those yeah. are not comparable. To say nothing of the differential in the platform that Cherry had as one of the most famous people in Canada on such a major broadcast, and a broadcast that is not supposed to have anything to do with discussing Im immigration. Uh, and Jess Allen as a person who's on an opinion show where she, her job is to have opinions like that, and Jess Allen is somebody who nobody really, I think, you know, was not a famous Canadian before this incident. So these are not, to any, I think, reasonable analysis, comparable uh, positions that were put out. No, definitely not. Uh, yeah, Don Cherry's comments were absolutely racist, and I think that to call Jess Allen's comments racist completely misunderstands what racism is based on. It ignores the fact that the, the majority of hockey players, the white men who are playing hockey, the white boys who are playing hockey, are in incredibly privileged positions, as she points out, and it would be pretty hard to defend the point that she is also um, a bigot in the same way that people are calling Don Cherry one. Also, can we credit her with coining the term, um, you know, worshipping at the altar of hockey? Because I really like that phrase. I think that it has a great um, ring and accuracy to it. Absolutely. Uh, let, let that be the, the legacy of that uh, of that little episode. I'm glad the CTV, I mean, CTV, they issued kind of a mealy mouth thing that they apologize if, if people's feelings are hurt, but whatever, they, they didn't buckle. And, I, and I'm, I'm glad that they didn't. 
As for Don Cherry, the last thing I want to say about him is uh, I want to buck against this idea that he went out, as I did last time, but I think it's worth reminding people because he's spoken up since last week when we discussed this, this idea that he's going out strong, going out, standing up for what he believes and going out on his shield. No, he's going out lying. He's going out pretending that he was not aiming those comments at people of color and at immigrants specifically. He, he's going out talk, uh, saying that he was talking about all people should be wearing the poppy and he, uh, you know, ridiculously says, well, maybe I'm talking about Irish immigrants or Scottish immigrants. And, uh, you know, Scott Stinson writing in the London Free Press, uh, he writes that he has received an incredible amount of correspondence from Don Cherry's supporters who disagree with Don Cherry when Don Cherry says that uh, he was not talking about people of color. The people who are writing to Scott Stinson who support Don Cherry knew exactly who Don Cherry was talking about in their racist letters to Scott Stinson. Uh, they agree with what Don Cherry actually was saying, not what Don Cherry is pretending he was saying. And um, of course, when I say that Don Cherry has spoken up since last week, I am referring to Don Cherry's new podcast, DC's Grapevine. And Taryn, let me tell you, a lot of washed up former CBC personalities have launched podcasts. Of course, uh, Jean Gameshi had the Ideation Project, Peter Mansbridge had the bridge. Now Don Cherry's got the grapevine, but they are all just walking in my footsteps. I was first, and uh, I viciously guard that position. And that uh, professional jealousy is not going to stop me from providing a service that we provided in the past to our listeners. DC's the grapevine. You know, it's a wonderful podcast if you want to catch Don Cherry uh, unedited in the raw with his son and his grandson. But, you know, not everybody listening to this show has time to listen to every episode of DC's The Grapevine. And for those listeners, we are happy to provide an abridged... Ver no, we're not going to do that. I'm sorry. I, I, I can't make I can't make uh, David Crosby sit through Don Cherry's podcast. We're not going to do that. I, uh, I'm sorry for teasing you. I just want to say I'm surprised that you willingly grouped yourself together with those people. That's an interesting um, tack. I make all kinds of choices all the time. Taryn, that is your Candleland Shortcuts. I really appreciate you uh, finding time in this difficult week to join me for it. Thanks for reaching out. Everyone, uh, you can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send. We are on Twitter at Canadaland. Where can people find you, Taryn? Uh, they can find me on the Twitter. Uh, my handle is Taryn A.L. Grant. That's T-A-R-Y-N-A-L-G-R-A-N-T. And that's probably the best place to find me these days. My work is still on thestar.com slash Halifax as well, if you want to check me out there. Um, but if you want to contact me, find my details on Twitter. And you should do that. Uh, why not stop and follow Taryn on Twitter right now? Uh, it'll be worth your while when you find out where she's going to be reporting next. You can find our website at canadalandshow.com, and we are in crowdfunding mode. And that is at patreon.com slash canadaland. This episode is produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. You do have a choice to fund independent journalism in Canada. Fund us at patreon.com slash Thank you. Thank you.